This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. So we're doing something new at Pass the Mic, something we've never tried before. Actually, it's going to be on social media. It's called the Tisby Takeover. It don't don't mind the name. It's just alliteration. But I will be taking over our RAN Twitter account on Juneteenth, June 19th. So tune in. I don't have the set time yet, but check our social media outlets. If you aren't following us on Twitter, follow us at RAN Network. That's at R-A-A Network. I will be answering questions. So come with your questions. Make them as hard as you want because I've only got 140 characters. So if it's too hard, I'll just say, oh, it's too short. But come with anything you want. I'll be open to answering your questions. I'm excited to interact with you all. And that is on June 19th. Stay tuned for more details about the quote Tisby Takeover. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. What's up, brother Jamar? Hey man, as always, excited to be on the show and excited about you know we're 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 uh, a trio today. This is kind yes. of special, and this is crazy because we normally don't have extra people coming into the conversation. Normally, it's just a conversation with me and Jamar and the listeners. Sometimes it'll be Bo, but we have another of the Rand staffers, Pastor Aaron James, on the line. Hey, Aaron, what's up, brother? I'm good, man. I'm honored to be on here with you, brothers. Now, we have Aaron on for a very specific reason, right, Jamar? Absolutely. Uh, Many of our listeners will be well aware of some recent events going down at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. It's there. You telling me there was drama, bro? I missed it. Well, yeah. Well, you know, just a little bit. Come on, man. (laughs) What happened, man? You got to fill me in. You got to fill me in, bro. So, uh, I'm kidding, by the way. Of course, I know what's going on. Yeah, by the way, Aaron is our resident uh, SBC denomination member. So, listen, okay, so let's talk about, hold up, let's talk about this real quick, just for a second. We are diverse at RAN, okay, because black people are dynamic. So, I'm non denominational. Jamar, you are Presbyterian. And Aaron, you are Southern Baptist. See? So, so <laughs> it ain't, see, it ain't all one. We just all, you know, all over the place. Come on. Anyways, go ahead, Jamar. So there was a resolution, and a resolution is basically a statement uh, that was submitted to the convention, and it was a resolution uh, authored by Reverend Dwight McKissick, an African-American pastor out of Arlington, Texas, and it was a resolution condemning the alt-right as a white supremacist racist group. He used... Strong, pointed language. There was no mincing words about who he was calling out and what he meant. Um, now, it, it's 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 a little bit tricky in terms of the details because the way these meetings work, they kind of function according to Robert's Rules of Order. And so you compose a resolution and it doesn't 
just go straight to the large gathering and get right. voted on. It goes to what's called a resolutions committee. And there's 10 people on this committee, and they get all of the resolutions, dozens, maybe even more, uh, and they decide whether to move a specific resolution forward to the larger group. Uh, mm -hmm. What happened was in this resolutions committee, they saw this uh, resolution condemning the alt-right. The committee decided not to move it forward. That wasn't the end, though. McKissick got up in the large group meeting, and there's a way that you can basically call for a vote to reconsider whether uh, to bring right. that resolution forward, which he did. That, too, failed. His attempt to get that um, uh, brought to the large group failed or reconsidered. That failed. And then all heck broke loose, which was really interesting. Um, we were right. re This was really interesting. So, so in several articles, it noted – and by the way, shout out to great religion reporters like Emma Green at The Atlantic, uh, Sarah yes. Pulliam Bailey at Washington Post, and many, many others who are, who are really doing – uh, hard work trying to get accurate Kate reporting. Kate Shellnut, too. Kate Shellnut doing great work. Um, so in, in many outlets, it was reported that, you know, when McKissick was up at the microphone trying to get this reconsidered, you know, the messengers, as as the delegates are called, they, they had basically checked out. And so it failed. Right. But others were observing. So, Tyler, what happened after that? Yeah, so right after that, it seemed as though, and it was interesting because I was actually sent a link to watch it live. And that's abnormal. I'm not familiar with denominational politics and the ins and out of convention meetings. Familiar somewhat with Robert's Rules of Order, but not totally. So when I clocked in, I was actually jumped in right at the point where Reverend McKissick was giving his very passionate plea um, towards the convention condemning the alt-right, and generally more broadly white supremacy. So at that point, I didn't really know what was going on, only that I could tell people were a little bit disengaged through fatigue or weren't really paying attention. I was riveted. I could tell others weren't for a number of reasons, I'm sure. But I kind of came in at that point. And then from there, the Twitter feed just exploded. So people from Thabiti to Jackie, Jackie Hill Perry to our friend Akemini Uwan and others just started talking about this. And it was pretty amazing to see the shift because we saw so many tweets. And then all of a sudden it's as, it's as if someone realized that maybe there's a problem here. Maybe something happened. Uh, maybe we missed something. And over the next few hours, we see reports from the Atlantic, ABC, the Washington Post, CNN, other places. And then it seems as though they say, well, you know what? We should probably talk about this tonight at the, you know, ending of tonight's meeting. And so from that point on, then I'm hearing there's going to be another vote and all these other things. So all these parliamentary procedures are going on. I'm totally lost. I don't know what's going on. All I know is there was an, an attempt to condemn the alt-right openly at the convention. It was not taken out of committee to even be voted on. And then an attempt to maybe bring it up at a second business meeting that was voted down or didn't reach a majority, a two thirds majority. So all these things are going on. I'm completely lost. And the optics are just so bad because yeah. I'm like, what do we have to what do we have to consider here? What are we talking about? And, and I don't know. So, Aaron, as an SBC pastor, a new SBC pastor, so to speak, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Well, first of all, as you said, I'm fairly new. I'm not an SBC OG. 
Um, and so uh, my my Is that what they're calling now? That's what they would call them? OGs? That's, yeah, I'll use that. <laughs> their license plates and everything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, even though my affiliation is, and, and cooperation within the Southern Baptist Convention is relatively new, I found the initial response of, of that resolution not even being able to, to proceed out of committee to be extremely discouraging. Um, I've taken the time myself uh, to read Reverend McKissick's resolution. Uh, one of the reasons given for given for the the rejection of his resolution was that some of the language was too broad or inflammatory. And I find direct mm. language, I find prophetic language, I find no inflammatory language within that resolution, within his initial resolution. And so uh, this is not to say that the SBC has not taken steps in terms of racial reconciliation and justice. Uh, that's not the point we're making here at all tonight. However, this initial decision did reinforce the fact that there is still a healthy level of marginalization within the Southern Baptist Convention for African-Americans and other people of color. Right. Now, so Jamar, immediately after this, that night, they put it up to a vote for the next day at the 2.45 p.m. slot that it was originally designated for. Now, they had a resolution, but it was a different resolution, right? Ooh, it was a different resolution. And so, I mean, to be clear, number one, I don't think that many, any, a majority by far of the messengers there by not at first bringing this to a vote, we're consciously thinking racist thoughts, right? This, <laughs> right. I'm not say that. What we're not what we're not saying is, oh, they failed to pass this uh, resolution condemning the alt right the first time. Therefore, they all were pro alt right and pro racist. That that's not what we're what we're saying. But we got to understand that that this not even getting out of from. Uh, committee uh by that time the damage is done i mean at right. at that point it's damage control to to me and i think a lot of other uh people of color and so it, it went up for a vote but this was not the original resolution that reverend mckissick had authored this was a new re resolution that the committee said is our resolution and they made it clear it wasn't his which was really troubling for me because as far as I know, there was one African-American in the resolutions committee. The original right, author right. of the resolution was not consulted for the new wording. Um, I do believe they did get input from other people, but, but not Reverend McKissick. And so right. it's very concerning to me. It feels like uh, theological policing uh, that hmm. an African-American pastor in good standing authored this resolution it was deemed the wording was deemed too inflammatory confrontational however you want to describe it they didn't like it and so a group of mostly white men has to rewrite it and that's the one that gets passed that's troublesome hmm. to me now do you feel that and, and you both can hop in do you feel that the second resolution was in any way stronger than the first personally i would prefer the first resolution and um, reason being when I read through resolution number 10 and I'm reading, I'm reading and 
And I mean, I don't mean to sound crass, but I was waiting for it to get to the point. And right. and so you, you, you're reading through all of these different points within the resolution that seem to. Um, I don't know any other way to say this, but just like, OK, let's pat ourselves on the back hmm. for the progress that that we've made. Or, you know, for the steps that we've already taken, let's let's um, let's, uh, you know, uh, you know, prove our case, you know, our innocence, so to speak. And and then let's get to the point. And to be quite honest, for me as a black man, it came off as hollow. Right. I mean, yeah. That, so so this the the second resolution that got passed. It went to great lengths to detail what the SBC had already done in mm-hmm. terms of racial reconciliation and progress. So it, it mentioned other resolutions. It mentioned a new book um, uh, co-edited by Jarvis Williams, who's been on the show several times. All that's great, but that was not the point of the original resolution. The original resolution was to call out the alt-right, their racism, their white supremacy, and the bulk of the resolution pertained to that specific issue. And in the new resolution, there was much less space devoted to that specific concern, which to me means, no, it wasn't stronger. It wasn't more direct. It was, Mm. I think the fact that the original resolution was strong and direct was probably a big reason why it didn't get out of committee. So, you know, it, it, it became something that would not ruffle the feathers of a majority of messengers there. And in so doing, perhaps inadvertently, I suppose, uh, it, it seemed to me, you know, like like Aaron said, more hollow, certainly not as effective as, as the right. original resolution. Yeah. And I think one interesting omission was definitely the curse of him. I think that the denunciation of the curse of him as an ideology, as a theological thought process, which I mean, if you want very particularly <laughs> particular evidence, uh, when I was in college, I had its long drawn out conversation with someone about the curse of ham and how I did not believe in it and all these other things. He said, well, I went to the Bible professor here and one of the Bible professors here said he does believe in it. No. Yeah. The person who I was talking to was black as well. So this wasn't like a black, white thing. Um, And so if you want to talk about how the curse of ham infects even the thought processes that we have currently of young people, of young black people, I think a, a strong denunciation of that would have been, much more agreeable to me. And so I think maybe that that was the reason why I felt that standing and applauding at the end of the passing of the resolution, even though I know many people did within the SBC, even within um, our our community, the African-American community at the SBC, and it was a very emotional moment for a lot of people. I don't poo-poo that at all, and I don't put that off to the side or say that that's illegitimate, but I think that made me a little feel a little weird and feel feel like what are we applauding um yeah. when we should probably be as our friend said weeping instead of of clapping yeah we we need to do an autopsy of this whole event and figure out cause of death like why was this resolution killed in committee in the first place right. why did it take the outcry mainly of african americans and on social media 
to bring this to the level of attention that it ultimately got. Now, don't get me wrong. This resolution had to pass, and I'm glad it passed. It was good that it was. And I've been there um, in those kinds of moments uh, in my own denomination where we've been at these annual meetings and we've passed resolutions about race that were that were conflicted and contested. And when it does finally go through, there's this moment of elation, like we're making progress. There's this feeling of unity. I get that. And and for those who were there and felt that, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if people were moved to tears, I understand. But we've got to also look at the at the impact. We've got to also think about how we got here to where such a moment is so exceptional when really it should be kind of basic uh, in terms of our stance as brothers right. and sisters in Christ to condemn these kinds of movements. Right. Let me ask you guys this, both of you, since you guys are in denominations, and I think even I am starting to consider what affiliations I'll take as I get older and then maybe eventually pastor a church and all these other things. What is reasonable for people of color to expect from their denomination? <laughs> because what I'm hearing a lot of is, well, this is a great sign. And then when people say, hey, there's not a lot of representation, well, the representation is equal to the amount of participating African-Americans. And people say, well, what, what would you like us to do? What can we do? What's reasonable then? What's reasonable to expect uh, for, from denominations for people of color, especially considering the history of denominations such as the SBC? Sadly, you can expect a healthy level of loneliness in terms of not being in a community where your dignity and all that you are, all that you bring to the table as an African-American, that unique experience will be embraced. Um, mm -hmm. I, I will say that within our local context here, um, there have been white brothers and sisters who have been so gracious, so accommodating, so helpful, and so loving. Um, and I'm truly blessed by their friendship and their partnership, and I thank God for it. And um, I believe that the Lord is even using our local church to to, to gain ground and to, to be a testimony to the reality of his kingdom and the unity that it brings. However, I have also experienced and and can say you can expect to be within meetings and be within context where there will be people who will look at you like you just got out of a spaceship uh, from Mars or um, right. who, who will to some degree may or may not even acknowledge your existence. Being a part of conversations where statements are thrown out because everyone uh, assumes that, that the politics in the room are exactly the same. And, and, and so comments will be made. And, and I've, I've been personally a part of a few of those moments where I've been like, Hmm, all right, let me just, let me just, let me, let me let that go. And let me find, you know, like, Lord, give me grace. Let me, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. And, and so, uh, there is, uh, there is, I, uh, uh, I'll say this. I, I grew up Church of God in Christ. Shout out to Light of the World, Church of God in Christ, Amy, Louisiana. Hold you. Uh, <laughs> and, and over the last 18 months, two years, I have found myself longing for that dignity-affirming community 
that I had when I was a kid. I'm not saying that it's perfect. I'm not saying that it didn't have its issues. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm talking basic human dignity and being within a community where you are embraced uh, um, for all that you are. You're not weird. You're not a castaway. You don't feel like, you, you know, this, this, this perpetual otherness. Uh, that right, is, that right. is a hurdle that I've yet to, to get over actually. Yeah. Jamar, what would you add to that? Amen. To what Aaron said, that's the reality of what it's like to be a minority in a lot of situations and especially in the church where it's special, right? This is the, the household of God and there's supposed to be a sense of supernatural unity, which is why when, when you, you feel that otherness that pastor Aaron mentioned, it hurts so bad and it gets so exhausting. I think it's very difficult on a denominational level to expect much as a racial or ethnic minority because denominations are big. It also depends on the polity, the church government, governance. Sure. How do things happen? How do things move along? Um, Protestantism doesn't have a pope. There's no single individual where the buck stops. Um, in the SBC, even the president is elected for a one-year term at a time, renewable one time, so up to two years at a time. Um, you know, the resolutions made are not binding on individual congregations. So all of that plays into it. So I think when it comes to a denomination, racial and ethnic minorities need to curb their expectations, quite honestly. Yeah. Hmm. The smaller you get, though, at a regional level and certainly at a at a at a congregational level, I think we ought to expect more. Uh, they know us more personally. Uh, the 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 organization is smaller, and so it should be more agile. And so we should expect to be heard, and by that I mean by the leadership, um, and and in more than just a you know, I'll hear you out so you get off my back kind of way. I, th I think our our voices uh, should be heeded um, and at minimum taken under consideration. Uh, but the reality is white evangelicalism is burdened with hundreds of years of history that has intentionally, carefully, and persistently found ways to justify the oppression of black people. And that is a legacy that by no means has gone away. Um, right. So that's where we are. And then begs the question, which we've seen a lot on social media, of um, how much is too much? Is there a purpose mm. in our being in these white evangelical spaces? And so, I don't know. Time. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> let's talk about that. Is there a purpose? Because here's what I'm, I'm seeing personally. I'm seeing Reverend McKissick who is courageous and who gave an impassioned plea to his convention, then I'm saying that he was not valued enough to be in the room to craft or help assist with a what should have been a newer and better resolution. Some people think it was better. We would kind of maybe differ a little bit. But regardless, the revised version should have included him in some way since he did bring it up. And then I'm also saying that he, it seems as though he and others do curb their expectations, right? So they do say, well, if you pass this, that's great. And, and what I'm saying is, why would we be a part of, of, of an organization? Why would we be a part of a denomination 
where we have to fight for decades or years or however long to get the denomination, which is well aware of these issues, to address and push against this without any sort of of, of contention. What, what, like, why is this a thing? Like, why are we still dealing with this? I'm, I'm, and I'm asking honestly, like, am I missing something here? Like, why be a part of it then? So, like, I, I'm not saying there's like some magical safe denomination somewhere else where everything is perfect. We're all sinners. But I'm trying to figure out what's up here. Why still be a part of the larger group? So, I mean, I've wrestled with this often. And one of one of the people I really respect, his name is Y Plummer. He's the African-American ministry coordinator for Mission to North America, which is part of uh, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. He put it to me very well. He said to be in this space is a calling. Like it's not for everybody. Uh, the people who yeah. the African-Americans who um, decide that these white evangelical denominations are their home are there out of a deep sense of commit commitment and calling. Right. Like it's usually I found mm -hmm. and certainly for me, it has to do with uh, the way theology is articulated, at least on paper and the the way the church government works. And so those aren't passing concerns. Those are big deals so that it's not as simple as just walking away because of racism. You're actually walking away from some things that you have committed to as a Christian. And along with that is the whole idea of racial reconciliation, which begs a definition that we can't get into here. But in broad strokes, some sort of more positive relationships between different racial groups. There are folks who are committed to that and know that their presence is important in those endeavors and as incremental and faltering and even sometimes wrong um, these denominations get it, there's a purpose and a point to being there. Now, all that being said is just by way of explanation. I'm not necessarily advocating that, but I know folks who who decide to be part of these larger white evangelical groups. There's there's something deeper there. Um, it's not just it's not it's not a sense of being sold out or disconnected from your culture. There's there's a reason and a purpose for you being there. And it's very important, which gives it sticking power. Hmm. Yeah. And let me say this. I'm not saying that forbearance or long suffering is within a denomination is inherently sinful. Like That's not what I'm saying. And I'm also not saying or implying that people should have a mass exodus. Like that's that's, again, not what I'm saying. I recognize there's complexities to this and I don't think there's a perfect landing spot for any group of people. But what I do say is this. I, I'm 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 burdened because I think we're at this place of. It just seems like this perpetual cycle of attempting to get a group of people to accept our personhood, like not our preference, but our personhood. Yes. So, it, you know, I understand like some people may want a denomination to be better in this area, that area. But when we talk about race, we're talking about something that is intrinsically who we are. And when we say that and when we talk about this reality and it is bristled at in any way, shape, or form consistently over the course of, of now centuries, I'm trying to figure out well, what are we doing here and what's the end game? Is the end game just to exist for the hope of racial reconciliation? 
or is the end game to see measurable measurable acceptance because here, here's here's what I would caution I think it's one thing to say okay all of us are sinners we all have issues and we all have things that could be better in every denomination in every affiliation in every tribe and I would say yes and amen but the question is not that the question is when presented with the evidence do you fully and totally and completely repent and forsake it now I think that's the question and so if we're not seeing consistent repentance and forsaking what do we do we just like just keep hanging out do we just say hey man you know we just gonna bear with you and then one day i think you'll figure it out i hope well, i pray that's where i'm at that's that's where i'm at now uh i am i am extremely passionate about um about multi-ethnic gospel-centered community but not like in a storefront window kind of way um what what i am passionate about is not simply acceptance uh, i don't need acceptance that way. Um, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so it's not necessarily acceptance, but it is a burning desire within me to see the body of Christ, specifically within the context of my community, live out and be what the Lord Jesus Christ died and shed his blood for it to be. And what makes it more difficult is that if we were willing to settle for the window uh, dressing version, for just simply the aesthetics of multi-ethnic community, then that would be a lot easier. But that's not what we're after because that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is when there is not simply different ethnicities worshiping together, but when white believers are able and willing to submit to black leadership, mm -hmm. when there is genuine uh, mixture of cultures that are expressed in worship from a liturgical standpoint, um, when when talk about the budget, talk about the money. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. I mean, when when it's it's when when church staffs and and worship teams or choirs or whatever, when these things really mirror that, and, and so that and that that is genuinely a hard road. And I ag agree wholeheartedly with Jamar that it is indeed a calling. It is not for everyone and it's a battle and sometimes there is a level of fatigue that goes along with it but brothers I got to say this when this decision when the initial decision was made known I could not help but see it as a link in a chain of events that stretches back for centuries mm, yeah absolutely. Um, that, that 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 is a reality and um, it what 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 made it difficult to swallow, even when people were very congratulatory and celebratory at the passing of resolution number 10, the only thing that I could think of was that it was like watching a bride and a groom standing at the altar. And then when the, the, the one who's officiating the wedding gets to the groom, initially he says no. Right. So so then his brothers, you know, they're like, whoa, what are you doing? You can't do this. It's embarrassing. They take him into a side room and, and then they coach him up a little bit. And, hey, man, this looks bad. The optics are not good. You can't tell her no in front of everybody like that. You got to say, yeah, man, whether you feel it or not, you got to say, yeah, they bring him out in front of everybody. And then he's ready to say yes. But here's a question. Should she? Wow. Huh. Wow. Whoa. Preach. That's heavy, bro. <laughs> That's it. Okay, so I have to, I, you know, to that point, I have to shout out Joseph Caldwell. He's the president 
at Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies. And he recently released an article that's been getting a lot of traction that was very encouraging and kind of hits on maybe some of Aaron's points. Um, and I think some of my frustrations, y'all have to understand, I'm Jamar's anger translator. So this is natural. We, we have these conversations speak on it. all the time. So the title of the article is Why Pastor McKissick's Language Matters and the Southern Baptist Convention Should Be Ashamed. Now, one of the points that he makes is that anger is a legitimate and necessary emotion in the face of tyranny if our voices are truly to be prophetic. And so if we're actually in this place of understanding what it means, the indignity of seeing our brothers and sisters targeted by alt-right trolls or other people like that, and also seeing these biases infect our congregations of believers then there's a right for us to be angry. Um, he also talks about listing the ways um, you are not racist while condemning racism is never a good sign. Um, his third point is that condemning the alt-right should not have, should have been a part of the agenda of the SBC, not a mad scramble to save face. But then the final one is very interesting. And I'd like to kind of close out by talking about this. Reason four says white folks need to stop believing they have the right to set the agenda, language and tone of discussion on race in America. Here's what I'm kind of getting at here. And I think Aaron brings up a great, a powerful analogy. And so I'm just trying to see here, if we sit in this same place, if we sit in the same seat, if we sit at the same table and allow other people to dictate the menu, why should we expect something to change? And is there a way that we can press this issue without up and leaving? Is there a way? Do you think there's another way to continue, we just have resolutions, we have more media, we have more content, we have more conversations, we have more conferences, we have more panels. Is that the way? And then eventually we'll get to set the menu? Or, or are we fooling ourselves? Are we fooling ourselves from people who don't, who would, who would hear that statement and say, that's trash, that's racism, that's, that's, uh, or racist or however, that's, that's bigoted because you just want black supremacy now. Like, are we fooling ourselves here? I'm, I'm just being very honest because I think it's best to have an honest conversation. Yeah, let's have it. an honest conversation. I think, number one, let's clarify. Leaving a denomination is not leaving the church. And the right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The impression I get from some people is that if you walk away from a denomination, particularly as a person of color from a, a mainly white evangelical denomination, you're somehow giving up on the church and giving up on racial reconciliation. Well, that's just not true. A denomination is not the church universal. The denomination is an organized expression of the church, and it's not binding. Uh, nobody is obligated to stay in a particular denomination. Now, as I say that, I don't mean you take it lightly. You shouldn't enter into nor should you leave a denomination easily or, or glibly. But at the same time, I think we ought not to bind consciences and say, well, you must stay. Otherwise, you're walking away from the church. You're walking away from your white brothers and sisters. You're walking away perhaps even from faith or, or orthodoxy. That's not it. It's not that crucial. It's a denomination. And so let's put that in perspective. Now, are we fooling ourselves? I think we have to be realistic. I don't think it's I don't think it's fooling ourselves necessarily, but we got to be realistic. And I think there's a difference between optimism, pessimism, and I want to stay in the lane of realism. Realistically, we're dealing and with cynicism. And cynicism and, cynicism and bitterness, all that stuff. 
being realistic doesn't mean you're cynical. Being realistic doesn't mean you're bitter. It means you're dealing with reality. And the reality is we're dealing with decades and centuries of entrenched white supremacy. So how much, no matter how vigorous our efforts, how much progress can we expect to see in our lifetimes or, or even shorter amount of time? It's going to be very little. That being said, some there's got to be pressing. And so I've committed to continue continuing to speak truth as I see it, at least. Um, I've committed to continue continually talking about race in forthright, I hope gracious terms, but even um, if there's anger there, I think it's legitimate. If there's pointedness there, that's because the matter is urgent. And I think we need to start paying attention to that. Uh, we need to start centering the experiences of marginalized people instead of focusing so much attention on how it makes white people feel. And so in that sense, uh, that's a tough road to hope. And that's not for everyone. And it's not for everyone to do from within white evangelical right. spaces. Right, right. Absolutely. Aaron, any thoughts on that? Are we fooling ourselves, man? You know, I'd, I'd like to think that we we are not. Um, I am I am hopeful, but also there is a growing urgency in my soul. And quite honestly, um, my message is simply this. Um, I'm not waiting forever. Um, I, I want to graciously, prayerfully, biblically, uh, in a Christ-like manner, push this envelope. But at the same time, it is not the design of God for Christians to live in a subservient manner to other Christians culturally, liturgically, ecclesiologically, any other way within the context of Christian community. That is not the design of God. That is not the nature of his kingdom. And so quite simply, something has to give. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also want to make one more point that I think is important at this time. I think a lot of people listening who are people of color are part of denominations and a lot of people who are white brothers and sisters are part of denominations as well. I want to encourage you guys not to do one thing if possible. If you do stay, if you do rock out and continue to press forward and cultivate these seeds and plant them and water them and allow the Lord to give increase in his time. I want to encourage you not to make those who stay preferable or weapons mm. against those who prefer to step out. Amen. Um, and I want to encourage you not to make the, the people who go along the paragon of what people in that particular ethnic community should or should not do. Like I just would encourage you not to do that because I think that gets into what about ism. And we can talk about that at another time, you know, proof texting, cultural proof texting, as Aaron has said multiple times. And, and I think it's dangerous. I think it fosters and breeds something very dangerous inside the hearts of people of color. And, and I think um, there are people who are called not to be in those denominations. We're not called to be in every single affiliation in every single lane. And I think where we are called, we should be as enthusiastic and as, as faithful as we possibly can. And I don't want to present myself as like just some non-affiliated person. Like I do have affiliation in an association, which is also predominantly white. So I'm thinking about these things as well. And I'm thinking about what it means for me and the future of, of my family and the future of my faith community as well. So all these things, I think we're all in various levels of, um, 
how do I say this? Sunkenness? Is that, is that fair? <laughs> Shout out to True Stable. We're all in, we all sunk in some way, shape, or form. And so we're all trying to work out what it means to live and to thrive and to flourish as God has created us to do. So it's a good conversation for us to continue having. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So y'all not going to get out. That's what y'all telling me. Y'all not going to get out. Y'all not going to get out of the, the Armitage <laughs> State. I'm messing, man. I'm messing. These are my brothers, so I can mess with them like that. But, um, but thank you guys, Aaron. Thank you for coming on. And uh, Jamar, as always, thank you so much for your wisdom. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, man. We want you guys to like the podcast on Twitter at underscore Pastor Mike is our handle. Also like us on Facebook at Rand Network. You can also join the private Pastor Mike Facebook group as well. We want you guys to subscribe to us on iTunes and on the Satchel app. And we want you guys to continue reaching out to us, asking questions, giving your thoughts. We received some great thoughts and we're going to announce the winner of our book bundle as well next week. So be on the lookout for that. We're very excited to announce who that is and send them some awesome books and some awesome works. Stay tuned for the next level of the listener appreciation challenge this month, which will again be released next week. You guys will want to tune in for that. Trust me, you will. Our producer for this episode has been Joshua Heath. And our executive producer has been always, as always, the award-winning Bo Yorks. Thank you guys, Joshua and Bo, for what you do. You continue to bless and encourage us. Well, thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mm -hmm. Mic. Still can't say it on time, Jamar. Come on, bro. I thought I was on time. Maybe there's an internet delay. Anyways. Too busy being woke. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.